Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 2. It is December 2nd, 2006, and this week we have for you the Banal of America Audio UFO Crash Retrieval Conference Special. As many of you may know from past episodes of the show, I took the trip out to Las Vegas, Nevada to attend the 4th Annual UFO Crash Retrieval Conference, or as I like to call it, the UFO CRC, November 10th to the 12th, 2006, in Las Vegas, Nevada, at the Tuscany Suites and Casino. Super ultra long-time Banal of America audio listeners will remember that we got our start doing on-the-scene interviews from the X-Conference 2 in Washington, D.C. back in April of 2005. Long before we were doing the Banal of America audio show, we did these on-site interviews at the X-Conference. What this special is is sort of a throwback to those days. We're going old school. We're going back to our roots, if you will. On-the-ground interviews from the UFO CRC we got five great conversations for you from the big event in Las Vegas. You're going to be hearing from Richard Dolan, Nick Redfern, Dr. Michael Sala, Paul Shaskin, and Matthew Tooney. In addition to that, I want to go in a little different direction with this episode. I've heard a lot of great esoteric radio programs do conference specials, but this has been All of America Audio. We do things a little differently here. I wanted to add a little more depth to the proceedings. So I picked up the phone last week. I gave Ryan Wood a call. I said, Ryan, let's do a little post-conference reflection on the UFO CRC. We got Ryan Wood coming on at the end of the show to look back on the conference and to sort of go behind the curtain, if you will, on the UFO CRC. We're going to talk about how he chooses the speakers, determines the lineup, why the UFO CRC saw tremendous growth in the last year when many conferences are having a hard time even keeping going. We're covering all that with Ryan Wood, plus we've got the five on-site interviews from Las Vegas. Some things to note before we begin, first of all, definitely check out banalofamerica.com for my detailed text recap of the big weekend. That's where you can find out who was speaking, what they were talking about, all that great stuff. Also, check out banalofamerica.com for a link to some fantastic pictures taken of the event by BOA audio friend Ralph Molesworth. Ralph did a fantastic job capturing the weekend's festivities. You can check all that out at banalofamerica.com. Also, in light of all the great guests we have on the program for you this week, I'm going to askew the usual lengthy biographies that we do for those of you who are unfamiliar. For those folks who are unfamiliar, go to banalofamerica.com where you found this audio page. There is detailed bios of each of the six guests here on the show today. Just trying to save a little time and roll right into the action, if you will. How I'm planning on tackling this special episode is I'm going to walk you through the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference board, presentation by presentation, give you a little thumbnail sketch of what they were talking about. Then, when we get to the folks who are featured in the on-site interviews, we'll just segue right into those, and you can hear from them what they were talking about. The on-site interviews were recorded on November 12, 2006 at the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference 4 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll and get started on the recap of the proceedings. It all kicked off on Friday night with the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman, giving a presentation on the why questions of the UFO phenomenon. 
you sort of got the feeling that these were the frequently asked Stan Friedman questions, the kind of stuff he probably has to answer at every public appearance. Stuff like, why don't the UFOs just land on the White House lawn? Why would a UFO crash if the ETs are so advanced? Why is the government covering up the UFO secret? That sort of thing. And, of course, Stan brought his considerable years of research and thought on the subject to these key questions. Up next was Dr. Michael Sala with a comparing and contrasting of the two whistleblower testimonies from Clifford Stone and Dan Sherman. These two guys separately claim to have been part of UFO crash retrieval operations for the government. Dr. Sala examined their two testimonies and also compared them to the Special Operations Manual 101. I'll turn it over here to Dr. Michael Sala, who I spoke with at the conference, to tell us more about what he was talking about. We're here with Dr. Michael Sala at the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. Uh, Michael, for the people who couldn't make it, just uh, give a little brief summary of what you were talking about. Hi, Tim. Well, at this conference, I was looking at the testimony of Clifford Stone, who was one of the few people who's come forward to say that he actually worked on crash retrieval operations. And Clifford has, in the past, had a lot of criticism directed towards him because he wasn't able to substantiate a lot of his claims. So what I did at the conference was I contrasted his claims with another whistleblower, Dan Sherman, whose uh, credentials are, are reliable and people have been able to confirm that he did serve in the military and with the NSA, and also looked at uh, Clifford's testimony in terms of the Special Operations Manual, which again I used as a way to corroborate Clifford's testimony. And um, we had Paul Harris on uh, our show uh, a couple weeks ago, and she was talking about your appearance here and how it was a really big thing because you're part of the EPSO political movement. And uh, maybe you can speak to that a little bit, how uh, since you're like an, an exo-political activist of sorts, uh, appearing in a sort of UFO conference uh, is good for the exo-political side. Well, that's right. Exopolitics is really looking at studying the political implications of the extraterrestrial presence. We're more interested in the policy questions. We're not interested so much in the show me that it's real, where's, where's the hard evidence. And so this is one of the things that I think exopolitics breaks new grounds with because we are looking at the policy implications of, say, for example, space weapons. I mean, are space weapons a good idea if extraterrestrials are flying around the planet? And we know from the evidence, especially presented at this conference, that there has been a policy of targeting extraterrestrial vehicles with uh, ground-based radar and other ground-based weapon systems, missiles and so forth. So if, if they deploy space-based weapon systems uh, using, say, directed energy weapons, you know, what's that going to mean in terms of extraterrestrial visitation? So these are important policy implications, and we need to look at that. Yeah. And uh, last thing, uh, we talked about a year and a half ago. What have you been up to since uh, we first met at the X-Conference in 05? I know you got a lot of irons in the fire, so sort of just uh, spill them out for me. Well, basically, I've been trying to organize exopolitics in terms of, one, getting uh, an institution, a non-profit 501c3 institution that is independently funded and that can support researchers out in the field and can produce good quality studies. Two, I've created an exopolitics journal which looks at... Uh, inviting people who have scholarly studies or experiences that have exopolitical relevance, and so we have the journal up and running. And the third thing that I've been doing is organizing conferences in, in Hawaii where people can come out and learn about extraterrestrial civilizations and get to have some interactive experiences with dolphins, which uh, are, an, are a non-terrestrial-based intelligence that I think can help people prepare for the day when extraterrestrial 
uh, visitation becomes an open um, phenomenon. Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, thanks for uh, taking some time for me. I know you're really busy, so uh, we'll just wrap it up here. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Tim. There you have it. That was Dr. Michael Sala from the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference for talking about his presentation, Exopolitics, and some of the other projects he's working on now. Following Dr. Sala's presentation, we moved on to the meet and greet with the speakers. This was really a fun part of the weekend where the attendees had a chance to meet the speakers, talk to them. And uh, some people, you know, they like to throw out their pet UFO theories at, at some of the speakers. And personally, I just like watching other people throw their UFO theories at the speakers and, and watch the reaction. Following that, all the speakers convened to the stage for the speakers panel that was emceed by Steve Bassett. Steve did a great job hosting this panel. First they went through and all the speakers sort of gave a little preview of what they were going to be talking about for the weekend. Then he handled questions from the audience. And th there were some thoughtful questions. There were some interesting questions. There was also some contentious moments when Stan Friedman discussed the Bob Lazar story and some of the people in the audience took exception to his take on the Bob Lazar story. So that was pretty fascinating for those of us who are in the know, if you will. And this went on for quite a while. I, I think it wrapped up at about 11, 11.30 at night, so everybody was pretty tired at that point, especially those people who had just got into town and those of us who were on East Coast time. There was a little bit of milling about, you know, sort of chit-chatting with people in the back of the room as people filed out, and uh, I had a good chance to talk to next week's Been All of America audio guest Bill Ryan for a while uh, on the way downstairs, and it was great to uh, talk shop with him about the UFO phenomenon. That pretty much wrapped up Friday night. And then we head on over to Saturday morning at 8.30 in the morning. I was pretty tired, but the speaker was Richard Dolan, who is just one of my favorite speakers out there and one of, I think, one of the best folks in ufology. Richard Dolan was giving a two-part talk on, first of all, sort of the history of UFO crashes and then also the structure of secrecy. We're going to turn it over here to Richard Dolan, who I spoke with at the conference. He's going to talk about his presentation also, he's going to answer questions about his new book, his sci-fi channel series, future plans, all that great stuff. Here's Richard Dolan from the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. I am here with Richard Dolan, author of the critically acclaimed UFOs in the National Security State. Hi, Tim. Nice to be on. And uh, for the people who couldn't make it out to Vegas, uh, give a little snapshot of what you were talking about here at the conference. Sure, here at the CrashCon uh, 2006, my, my thing was uh, basically a two-part talk. A lot of it anticipates things that are going into my next book, in fact. Uh, one is a, a history, in a way, of, of the leaks themselves about crash retrievals. I mean, a lot of people forget that it wasn't... Uh, you know, forever that we've been talking about crash retrievals of UFOs. This is really in the last couple of decades, and how have those stories come about, and what were some of the the interesting, good stories that got this whole thing going, uh, really starting in the late 1970s. Not just Roswell, but uh, many, many other researchers uh, throughout the 70s and 80s broke this field open by cultivating inside sources of different types. So I tried to sort of give an architecture of that, like who were the actual sources, what were they saying, how credible did they seem, and so on. And then the, uh, the other part of it was uh, trying to explore, you know, how likely is it that we are shooting down UFOs or we're trying to recover them. Uh, one thing I pointed out was that there are a huge number of witnesses who have seen attempted interceptions by military jets of UFOs. And you get this all throughout um, the 20th century, not just well, throughout the later half of the 20th century. 
not just the 40s and 50s, but right through the 1980s and 1990s and our own century. And then the other thing I really tried to get into were analyzing, uh, you know, likely results of reverse engineered technology. In other words, you get all these, these video hounds hanging out at Area 51 and in Southern California taking videos, shooting pictures uh, down in Antelope Valley and, and in Nevada. Uh, there's some very, very compelling bits of evidence that have come out of those areas that, that certainly look as though what you call the black world, the covert world, has been working on super exotic technology that to this day has not been officially acknowledged. Uh, and then the last part of what I talked about was really trying to understand what I call the structure of secrecy. That is, how's it being paid for? Uh, who's in charge? Who's benefiting from it? Uh, what's really going on? And it is, it's my opinion based on that evidence, the evidence that I've come across, that um, buried within the Department of Defense are a variety of what are called special access programs, or SAPs. And these are really beyond most congressional authority, or almost any congressional authority. Uh, they are ultra-secret. And it does appear to me that at least one of these SAPs, probably more, are directly related to, to alien technology studies. Um, and I discussed a couple of specific reasons why I think that was the case. Let's take care of the question that you said you've been getting all the time, and that is about the new book. It's the most anticipated sequel since Empire Strikes Back. Uh, what's the story with this so you can uh, get some of my listeners off your back? Yeah, well, <clears throat> there was uh, some... Uh, unfortunately, misleading information that made it seem like the book would be out for this conference, and uh, I'm sorry that that was the case, but it's not ready. I'm thinking springtime of 07 is a, is a very good likelihood. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. I'll, I'll look for the lines outside the borders of people camping out and that kind of oh, thing. Oh, yeah, I'm expecting just huge numbers. Maybe almost 100 people might actually even be able to. No, seriously, it's, it's within the UFO research field. There have been a lot of people who have been asking me about this for quite some time. Yeah. So I want to get it done. Awesome, awesome. And uh, a lot of people are talking about uh, your show here on the Sci-Fi Channel. you got a lot of press for that. So talk a little bit about Sci-Fi Investigate. Yeah, Sci-Fi Investigate was, uh, was a lot of fun. I, I would do it again in a heartbeat. We shot six episodes over the summer of 06 on a variety of different kind of uh, TV-related uh, paranormal topics. You get UFOs, we had Bigfoot, we had Voodoo, and so on. Uh, it was myself as one of the hosts, uh, along with three other individuals of different types of backgrounds, different perspectives, uh, not all of them believers in these things. And so uh, it was produced by NBC for the Sci-Fi Channel. Six episodes were shot. Uh, all, but, all but one now has been aired. And the last one will air next Wednesday, um, November, what is that, the 15th, I believe. And then if, if the ratings are good enough, the executives want to continue it to do more episodes. I, I would love for that to be the case. It does take a lot of time out of my research schedule. I want to get this book done. But I, I enjoyed the TV stuff, i got to tell you. I had a really good time with that. Um, and oh, one question that I get a lot uh, about you is uh, when the new book comes out, when you're done with that, um, what obviously it's hard to really look ahead, but are you going to stay within the UFO realm or are you going to look uh, somewhere beyond UFOs after that? Well, you write about UFOs, and sometimes it's hard to break into other fields because other people just don't want you. I mean, for example, 9-11. 9-11 researchers really want nothing to do with UFO researchers like myself. I can understand their, their perspective on this. They're afraid. I mean, they've got enough to worry about. Um, I'll, I enjoy, I'm still interested in this topic of UFOs, and there are a lot of uh, things that I'm considering to, to dive into in more detail. As long as I feel like I'm making a contribution here, I don't see myself leaving it. Uh, I've made uh, a, a very big personal commitment into, into learning about this, 
I, it would be hard for me, at least so I can see it right now, just to leave. Yeah. Of course, the future can't be known, but uh, I do have plans after my second book is done to probably create a, a somewhat more popular single-volume condensation of the two. It's a little more manageable in length for some people. I mean, one, the one thing about my book I know is that uh, it's a lot for some people's interests. I mean, it's a 500-page book, and the next one's going to be six to 700 pages. So um, that's asking a lot. So I think I'll have a nice slim volume, 200 pages with pictures, the whole thing, and that will probably outsell the other two combined. <laughs> After that, though, I really don't know. I'm interested in uh, the phenomenon known as the triangles, and I keep thinking of doing a specific study on that. Uh, I'm interested in black budget studies, as it were. So there's a lot of directions I may be looking. Okay. Um, anything you want to plug coming up in the future that uh, people should be looking for? The new book you said maybe in the springtime and uh, the sci-fi show. Uh, hopefully some more episodes. Anything else? Uh, website? Keyholepublishing.com. That's my, my small publishing company. No, those two things, the sci-fi show and uh, my, my forthcoming book are really the two big things I'm working on. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you very much for uh, doing this little interview here, and uh, thanks for appearing on Banal of America Audio proper last spring. I really appreciate it, and uh, hopefully we can sit down and talk again in depth when the new book comes out. Thank you, Tim. I'll do that anytime. There you have it. That was Richard Dolan at the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. Big thanks to Richard for taking some time out of the busy weekend to share with us a little bit about his presentation and also an update on some of the projects that he has in the works right now. Following Richard was Paul Shatskin with a tremendous presentation on early 20th century inventor T. Townsend Brown. T. T. Brown is one of the most infamous folks in the world of esoterica, much discussed, shrouded in mystery. I caught up with Paul Shatskin at the conference to talk about T. Townsend Brown and also another famous figure that he's done a lot of research on, Philo Farnsworth, the subject of the book Paul wrote called The Boy Who Invented Television. Here now is Paul Shatskin from the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. I am here with Paul Shatskin, who gave a tremendous presentation yesterday on T. Townsend Brown. Talk a little bit about your presentation for the people who couldn't make it out to Vegas. Well, T. Townsend Brown is a man whose name comes up frequently at conferences like this. He was the founder of NICAP back in 1956 and has been associated with UFOs ever since. He is an inventor, a physicist, and a scientist, and his principal contribution to modern civilization is what's known as now as the ionic breeze air purifier, which people are surprised to learn is based on the electrical phenomenon that Townsend Brown discovered as a teenager in the 1920s. And what causes that to come up at conferences like that is that the basic effect behind that device is regarded by many people as an anti-gravity effect. And what, uh, what, drove, what drove your interest in, in, in checking out these, because uh, you also did a book, uh, we'll talk about the book in a little bit, uh -huh. but you also uh, did a book on another early 1900 scientist. What, what, uh, what drove your interest in these early scientists? Well, I guess it traces back to the time when I was in the third grade, when my mother, who was desperate to get me to read anything, hauled me off to the Rumson, New Jersey Public Library to get a book. And the book that I took off the shelf was Thomas Edison's biography. And so it seems that my interest in invention goes back that far. When I was in the television business in the 1970s, I stumbled onto the story of a man named Philo T. Farnsworth, who is the 14-year-old farm boy who invented television in the 1920s, or television as we know it now, as it became an industry. And that story fascinated me, and I latched onto that story, met his family, tried to sell the story to television, was unable to do that, but finally wrote my own book of his life story that was published in 2002. And as I was finishing that book and having a book published, 
published for the first time in my life, I'm thinking about what I might do as a sequel. When an anonymous email came across my inbox that said, check out this guy T. Townsend Brown, and that's the origins of this project, an anonymous email that literally sucked me down a rabbit hole. Wow. Um, and now uh, a lot of your research on T. Townsend Brown was through his daughter and this mysterious uh, Yes, the individual, the individual we have codenamed Morgan. And uh, how did you hook up with these, uh, these tremendous insiders to the story? Well, I, I met Brown's daughter over a period of a few months after I got this anonymous email. I found a website that was operated on behalf of the Brown family at Soteria.com. I believe it's now Qualite.com. And, and I emailed the webmaster of that site and expressed my interest, having done a biography of a scientist before. And a few weeks later, I got an answer back that basically said the family was not really interested, but maybe this time. And I followed up, and it took about four months from uh, the initial inquiry until I actually was able to get a copy of my book into Linda Brown's hands. And uh, she wrote to me after that and said, I like your book, I like your approach, and I'm interested in doing a biography. So it was over a period of about six months, starting in the summer of 2002, that drew me into enough contact with the family and enough trust with the family to begin working with them. And then Morgan, who was a colleague of Townsend Brown starting in the 1960s and also an intimate of Brown's daughters at the same time, Morgan showed up about two years later. Awesome, awesome. And uh, when do you expect the T. Townsend Brown book to be available for uh, people to want to check it out? I'm expecting that the book will be finished about the middle of next year and uh, available in some form three to six months after that. So let's say by the end of next year. Okay, and uh, you were talking about your website. Why don't you uh, throw a plug out here for your website and where people can find out more sure. information? Well, the, the website that we've set up for the book is ttbrown.com, with or without the W's, just ttbrown.com. And I have actually posted the chapters that I've written, which is the first half of the book, which is mostly dealing with most of what's in, 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 in Brown's part where he was in the white world. It's in 1942, and he pretty much disappears behind the curtain. That's the part of the book that I'll be starting when I get home. But the chapters that I have written are all online there and can be read, and there is a discussion of those chapters and the whole book and the concept and all the peripheral subjects on the website at forum.ttbrown.com. You can find a link to it at ttbrown.com, and we welcome anybody who wants to be involved in that discussion. Awesome, awesome. And how can people pick up the other book, uh, The Boy Who Invented Television? The Boy Who Invented Television can be found at farnovision.com. That's F-A-R-N-O vision.com. Awesome. Well, Paul, thank you very much for uh, taking some time with me here at the end of the conference. Everyone's tired, and I appreciate that you took some time to talk to me and uh, share your story here with the listeners. My pleasure. I appreciate your interest. Thanks to Paul Shaskin for taking some time out of the busy weekend to talk to us. Following Paul's presentation was conference organizer Ryan Wood, who presented on the Devil's Hole UFO crash case. Ryan's going to talk about his presentation with a little more depth at the end of today's program in our special post-UFO CRC interview. But what I can tell you about it was that it was a really interesting look at what goes into investigating an individual UFO crash report. Ryan looked at it from a number of different avenues, including newspaper reports, witness sightings, government documents, also on-site investigation, and the use of more esoteric means like remote viewing. It was really uh, a thorough look at what you have to do to investigate just one UFO crash report and sort of shows you how detailed uh, the level of investigation is on these UFO crash cases. After Ryan Wood, we heard from Michael Lindemann, who was talking about a late 1990s symposium of high-ranking, high-powered type people 
where the topic of discussion was dealing with ET contact. The symposium was attended by major names in various big industries, including a three-star general, folks in the entertainment industry, folks in the banking industry, religious figures, and they ended up coming up with about eight different scenarios for how ET contact might be going down. Michael examined each of those different scenarios and tried to determine which one we may be dealing with right now. This was really groundbreaking material that I had never heard before and apparently had never been presented before. Hopefully we'll find out more about this symposium in the future because it sounded like there was some serious brain trust at these meetings. Up next was Peter Merlin, who was there to talk about crashes of government test craft coming out of Area 51 and how the government reacted to said crashes. This sort of gave you an interesting look at how the government deals with crashes that we know of that happened that aren't purported UFO crashes. And sort of you can look at those as a comparative study on what may be going on as far as UFO crashes go. What was probably most interesting about the presentation was that Peter visited a lot of these sites and found a lot of interesting material from these crashes. A lot of parts, a lot of fragments of the crashes, and a lot of that stuff was on display in the back of the conference hall. He had pieces of stealth fighters that had crashed and sort of pieces of the skin and stuff that was on the planes. It was really interesting stuff. And it sort of gave an indication that there may be hope that if there's a UFO crash, the government will do just as bad a job cleaning it up as they did with their regular plane crashes, and maybe we'll be able to get our hands on a piece of UFO material. After Peter Merlin, it was Frank Fraschino who was talking about the Braxton County Monster. Frank was premiering his film on the Braxton County Monster, which was a pretty cool documentary featuring Stan Friedman and a number of witnesses from the Braxton incident. I had never seen the testimony of some of these first-hand witnesses before, so that was pretty fun. And also, the documentary explored how some of these folks felt about the exploitation of the Braxton County story at the time, especially in how the quote-unquote monster was portrayed in the media. After that, there was a nice little break. Everybody sort of relaxed, went back to their rooms for a while. Those of us who were lucky enough to have tickets ended up in attendance that night at the banquet, which featured a keynote address from Las Vegas TV reporter George Knapp, who is well aware of the UFO phenomenon. What is really great about the banquet is that the conference has speakers platooned at each table. So no matter where you sit, you're going to be sitting with one of the conference speakers. I was seated for the evening at the table with Richard Dolan and had a good chance to talk with Richard about uh, baseball pretty much. Less, less ufology than baseball, but he did offer some insights into uh, what went on with the writing of the first book. After everybody ate dinner, then George Knapp gave his keynote address. This was a pretty biting commentary on the state of ufology, to be honest, and uh, I personally enjoyed it quite a bit. George talked a lot about uh, the problems facing ufology, the perception problems, uh, the problems with the lack of self-policing within the ufology scene, and also sort of that paranoia that has infiltrated ufology where everyone blames everybody else and throws around accusations of government influence. He also shared a lot of hilarious stories about people contacting him since he's sort of now the UFO reporter in the Las Vegas area. He's received correspondence from a lot of strange folks and he shared some great stories about that. I'd say perhaps this was probably one of the best big picture perspectives on the ufology scene that I'd heard in quite some time. I think George really hit the nail on the head as far as a lot of the issues are concerned in the field of ufology. That pretty much wrapped up Saturday night, so now we move on to Sunday morning with Bob Wood talking about potential alien viruses. 
Apparently he has a book coming out soon on the subject. He was talking about potential pandemics that may have actually been alien viruses. He was talking about how the government might deal with an alien virus if it happened. And also, he really brought the layperson up to speed on virology and that sort of thing for the folks like me who are sort of in the dark on that. Following Bob Wood was Nick Redfern to sort of take a UK look at the alien virus concept, most notably where the potential research into the alien viruses would take place in the UK, and also a discussion on the Berwyn Mountain incident. I had a chance to catch up with Nick Redfern at the conference, so let's turn it over to that on-the-ground interview where we'll get a lot more information on what he was presenting. We're here in Las Vegas, Nevada at the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference 4, and I am here with Nick Redfern. Nick, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, thanks, Tim. Having a good time. Awesome, awesome. Uh, why don't you tell the people who are unable to make it out here to Vegas uh, what you were talking about at the conference? Well, I've been doing a lot of research with Bob Wood, who was one of the speakers, and is the father of Ryan Wood, the conference organizer. And I'm speaking, or been speaking about alien viruses allegedly found at UFO crash sites. And this is a subject that's not really delved into too greatly. The idea that maybe some of these aliens present a biological threat to us, maybe not deliberately, but possibly, you know, through the differences in DNA, genetic makeup, that when our species potentially comes into contact with some of these creatures, at least, you know, that we come off worse in terms of contracting viruses from them, which really we don't have any um, defense against. And there are a number of stories about alien bodies from UFO crashes reportedly being taken to establishments that specifically focus on biological warfare, like Porton Down in England and Port Dietrich in the States. So it's a case of really trying to follow the evidence, see where it leads, why this is being done, and dig out the credible cases that seem to support this scenario. And one of the ones I've been speaking about is an incident in uh, North Wales in 1974, where something came down on a mountainside. And we have the testimony of a number of former military people who have come forward to say, they were involved in the recovery of bodies that were taken to Port and Down, the British government's biological research establishments, where presumably, at least, the bodies were you know, stored and, and analyzed by virus experts. And I've been doing this research for about a year with Bob Wood. And between us, we've collected a fairly substantial number of accounts from both sides of the Atlantic and around the world um, that seem to suggest that, for some reason, not all cases, obviously, but in certain UFO events, the, the aliens, if you like, seem to exhibit evidence of this highly contagious and very, very deadly virus. And, you know, we're trying to determine, is it something they deliberately release to affect us? Or is it just, you know, a side effect of a body being sliced open in a crash, you know, and the body's organs and fluids being spilled out into the open? We're just not sure. But, you know, it's potentially it's a serious aspect of the subject, the idea that, you know, I guess it could be adversely affected or wiped out by an alien virus against, you know, which really we have nothing, no defense against. Yeah, yeah. And now uh, the incident you're talking about is the Berwyn Mountain incident. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I actually got an email from someone in England who wanted me to uh, talk to more people about that. So uh, when I heard you talking about it, I was okay. like, well, I should bring this up because then, yeah. uh, then the guy in England will be happy. Right. Well, the, the incidents on the Berwyn Mountains, which is in North Wales, occurred on the night of the 23rd of January, 1974. Numerous people in the area heard what sounded like explosions, rumblings in the sky, the ground shook like an earthquake. Um, there were stories about police and the military cordoning off the area. 
um, stories about helicopters overflying the site as if they were looking for something. And it's become, I guess, the closest thing to like a British Roswell. Um, and just the same as with Roswell, there's numerous theories. Some people think it was a localized earthquake and a meteorite shower. Other people think possibly a top secret aircraft crashed or an aircraft carrying top secret equipment, maybe. Um, then, of course, there's a the UFO theory. But the, in the preceding months leading up to this, about three months, there were sightings of a lot of um, objects that became known as the Phantom Helicopter. Um, unmarked black helicopters flying around the countryside in the dead of night. Nobody really knew what these things were. And it really sort of came to a head with the Berwyn Mountain incident. And interestingly enough, there weren't really many sightings of the helicopters after this event. It sort of died down, which in itself is strange and, and interesting. Um, now, as I said, the, the case occurred in 74, and it was mentioned in the UFO literature in England and some of the newsletters and magazines at the time, but it kind of died the death when local um, um, Royal Air Force rescue people went out there and said, no, there's nothing to it, we didn't find anything, and it was all scaled down and forgotten about until the mid-1990s when it was kind of resurrected and new data, such as the, the story about alien bodies being taken to Port and Down from the site, began, began to surface. Other researchers began to look into it. More whistleblowers and former military people came forward saying, yeah, I know about the crash and the bodies found on the mountainside. And, and it really did, by about 97, take off to become a major case. And, and 10 years on, you know, people are still arguing about the case in England. You know, one person said, no, it was a, you know, just a, a natural event. Somebody else said, no, it was a UFO. And, you know, I think... The important thing is at least research is still being done, even if the community doesn't agree on every aspect of the case. Rather than just let it stagnate, people are still at least trying to get to the, the full story, which I think is good. Um, me, I, I find the, you know, the port and down biological warfare virus angle an interesting one because not many people are digging into that. And there is a lot of information out there. Um, the one thing that is good about the Berwyn case, I guess, or significant, is it actually is not that long ago, it's only 30 years, and most of the people who are involved are still alive, yeah, they're not, you know, it's not like Roswell, where it's 60 years, so we do have the opportunity, and it's a small country, you know, so most researchers can travel to the area and interview the people, and most of them are quite open about speaking, saying, yeah, you know, we saw this, or we saw the police cordon, and, yeah, so in that respect, is a case still worth investigating, and for the potential significance of it, I think that's one reason why we should continue to dig into it, regardless of where you know this researcher might say it leads, or that one says it's going to lead somewhere else. So. Um, now we had you on the show uh, back in the spring, talking about on the trail of the saucer spies. Uh, what have you been up to since then? Well, I've been doing quite a few lectures and conferences. Um, as you know, I did uh, Paul Kimball's conference in Canada, the New Frontiers Symposium, that went well. Um, I've got a new book coming out in February called Celebrity Secrets which is a study of government surveillance files on famous stars like John Lennon, Marilyn Monroe, Frank Sinatra. And not so much sort of celebrity gossip, but more to do with official secrecy and famous people and government secrets. So um, doing that, I've got a conference in Kansas City in December, which is called the Dark 32 uh, Conference. And if you go to dark32.com, you'll find all the details. There's me, um, paranormal author Josh Warren, and Jim Mars lecturing on everything from UFOs to cryptozoology to ghosts, paranormal subjects, conspiracies. And we're trying to 
trying to make it like a road trip where you know do city to city but this will be the first one and you know just see how it works out and, and how it goes so uh, I think it'll be a, a good conference and uh, couple of local events coming up in Dallas, Dallas Fort Worth MUFON group in January, I think, about crop circles, so got a few things going on. All right, well, uh, thank you very much for, for doing this little sit-down interview here, and uh, good luck with the new book, and hopefully we can have you on, we'll talk about it then. All right, thanks, Tim. There you go, folks. That was Nick Redfern from the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference, talking about his presentation, Porting Down, the Burma Mountain Incident. Big thanks to Nick for taking some time out of the busy weekend to talk to us. Following Nick Redfern was Linda Moulton Howe, who was talking about military whistleblowers. This was a really powerful presentation featuring some audio from an interview Linda did with some whistleblowers who were stationed in Florida tracking a UFO on radar. Uh, they tried to lock onto it, and the UFO like shot back some kind of pulse and reversed the polarization on all the equipment and like ruined a bunch of radar equipment. It was it was fascinating stuff. She also had uh, a video that she showed of an interview she had with a former military guy who, while he was working on a base somewhere, got into the files and saw some pictures of dead aliens. And Linda was also talking about harassment that goes on for some of the witnesses who try to contact her, and uh, that was really frightening stuff. And from there, we moved on to Dr. Bruce McAbee, who was discussing a mysterious UFO incident from December 6, 1950. Uh, what was really interesting about Bruce's presentation was that he weaved in some autobiographical accounts from various folks who were in the government at the time, well-known people. I can't remember them off the top of my head. I apologize for that. But they wrote about this incident in their autobiographies and he took a look at those and showed how the stories had changed over time and also weaved in witness testimonies from a UFO incident from around that time and really tried to tie all these together to get a look at really what was going on that night in December of 1950. Sunday evening and the conference as a whole wrapped up with Matthew Tooney as the final presentation. Matthew was talking about the Lumi Island incident, which is a purported crash of some object off the state of Washington in 1984. Matthew's done a great job looking into this story and really covered it with a lot of detail in his presentation. And as luck would have it, I ran into him at the end of the conference and we managed to talk a little bit about his presentation, the Lumi Island incident, and his overall view of the esoteric world and where he thinks it needs to be going, which was really fascinating stuff. So let's hear now from Matthew Tooney, the final presenter at the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference, and ironically enough, the final on-site interview from the big event. We are here in Las Vegas at the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference 4, and I am here with Matthew Tooney, who was talking about a very interesting potential UFO crash in the Washington area. Matthew, why don't you... Uh, let everybody who couldn't make it here to Vegas uh, bring them up to speed on what you were talking about. Okay, short synopsis. Um, in July of 1984, uh, a mysterious object, uh, described as a fireball trailing sparks, crashed into the northern Puget Sound between uh, Lummi and Eliza Islands in the northern sound just off of the town of Bellingham in Bellingham Bay. Uh, there were witnesses aboard two different vessels. Um, one vessel was only about 1,000 to 1,500 yards away from where the splashdown occurred uh, and saw it do, saw the object do a strange 
maneuver, kind of a, uh, a U-turn before heading into the into the water. Uh, whereupon it threw up uh, a wall of water about 70 to 100 feet high, and after it uh, went under the the water sort of boiled and roiled and bubbled for about 10 minutes thereafter. And the ship, uh, the small fishing vessel, went over to check it out and uh, called the Coast Guard and told them. So, we have the Coast Guard records. Uh, the Coast Guard responded uh, immediately and uh, went to see what's going on. Uh, while they were en route, they radioed uh, Whidbey Island Naval Air Station, which is a major uh, military installation. Uh, in, the, in the Puget Sound region between Seattle and the Canadian border. Um, Whidbey said, uh, no, we didn't have anything on our radar. We don't know of anything going down at that point. Uh, they also contacted um, either, I'm not sure which, which agency it was, either Air Force Space Command or NORAD, uh, either of which would have been tracking any kind of satellite that would have come down at that time. Um, so. There was no record of anything that would have been coming out of orbit at that time, uh, and there was apparently was nothing on radar. Uh, so we know that much. Uh, the Coast Guard searched the area at that point, since they figured it's not space junk. Uh, it might have been a plane, so they were looking for debris on the surface of the bay and found nothing. And that was pretty much the end of it until about uh, five months later, when a private recovery mission was uh, put together sort of on a shoestring. Uh, these were folks out of Seattle to the south of Bellingham. And uh, they brought a team north, two divers, two seasoned divers, uh, and a guy who was basically the financial muscle, I think. Uh, and he commandeered, they didn't commandeer, he rented a boat. <laughs> well, they didn't pay for the gas. It was a shoestring. Uh, he rented a boat, a uh, fishing vessel out of Bellingham. And uh, I have interviewed the captain of that vessel, uh, Dominic Papetti. And he uh, tells about what happened was, and this was December 30th, 1984, cold, clear night, or actually this was a daytime, and they went out, uh, parked over the object, uh, well they didn't know that there was an object there yet, but they found it on the depth finder, located an object about 10 feet by 30 feet, and appeared to be wedged into the bay floor at about a 45 degree angle. Uh, so the divers proceeded to dive upon the object, about 120 feet of water. I forgot to mention that in the presentation. Um, and one diver described a kind of goldish metallic object with a, a ring running around the edge of it and a, and a kind of a porthole or a, or a latch on one end. Uh, the other fellow actually stood on the object. And he described it as a, a satellite dish, which in those days, 1984, those were pretty, pretty humongous affairs. They were big ones. Um, and as he stood on it, he reported hearing or feeling or sensing a kind of vibrating sound, uh, uh, motion, like it was alive or uh, it was, yeah, it was, the switch was on. <laughs> um, so, uh, and that second diver was so excited that he uh, ascended way too rapidly and got a pretty bad case of the bends, um, and because he wanted to tell what he had seen. So they uh, came back to uh, the Bellingham Harbor, uh, saw to his uh, welfare. The diver was okay, it turned out. Um, and uh, they decided to go back the very next day and try and figure out a way to maybe dislodge the object and bring it, float it up somehow. Uh, which they did. They went back the next day and found nothing. 
the divers dove around the area again, couldn't find anything, nothing on the depth finder. And as it turns out, between those two daylight dives in the middle of the night on December 30th, according to many witnesses uh, in the Bellingham Harbor, uh, the lights of a large vessel were seen steaming uh, uh, northward from the Seattle area. Uh, a lot of the witnesses claim it was a NOAA vessel. That's the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. I'm not sure why they say that, but apparently the configuration of the lights, what it looked like, yeah, that sort of thing. This vessel in the middle of the night parked right over where the object had been located the day before. Um, was there apparently for three or four hours, something like that, and then steamed back south towards Seattle. And as I mentioned the next day, the private uh, crew went up back out and there was nothing there. So, did that ship take the object? We don't know. Did the object leave of its own accord? Maybe. Uh, it's it's an ongoing mystery and uh, one I still have a lot of research to do into. Awesome, awesome. And now uh, I wanted you to just kind of speak to what you were saying about real science. Uh, is that what you was called? Uh, yeah, true remember. science. True yeah, science. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit because I really found that to be very uh, profound. Well, good. I, I was afraid I was coming off a bit preachy, but uh, it's a it's a big concern to me. Um, what we're up against, those of us who study the paranormal, I think it's quite normal. <laughs> uh, what we're up against is a mainstream scientific community that refuses to do science when it comes to these events, uh, these energies, these experiences uh, that many of us have had uh, and seen and witnessed. And that really bothers me. And it's, and it's what bothers me even more is that our community, whether it's the UFO community, the Bigfoot research community, uh, psychics, uh, ghosts, whatever, uh, tends to divide, tends to become divided into little like armed camps of, with different agenda and egos, yeah, and little wars going on, and that tends to make us uh, even less uh, valid in the eyes of the of the mainstream defenders of the paradigm, you know. Uh, so that bugs me. I think we need to get together in a spirit of inclusion and uh, compare research, compare data, and uh, uh, mainstream science is not going to tackle this thing. It's it's not what they want to hear. Uh, these things don't exist because they can't exist. Why can't they exist? Because they don't exist. You know, I mean, it's, it becomes a circuitous thing. And so, yeah, I, I really have a lot of respect for folks who come to the conferences like this, researchers and just the people who are attending, uh, who uh, have an honest and valid interest in these things and are are willing to do the work. Where can people find more information about you and your research and stuff like that? Well, unfortunately, I don't have a website up yet, so they can email me at uh, mdtooney, that's like Matthew David Tooney, T-H-U-N-E-Y, at msn.com. Well, thank you very much for your time, and I appreciate it, and I enjoy your presentation a lot, and good luck with your future research. Thank you. Anytime. There you go, folks. That was Matthew Tooney talking about his presentation on the Lumi Island incident and also some thoughts on esoterica in general. Big thanks to Matthew for taking some time to talk to us. From there, Ryan Wood thanked everybody for attending and wrapped up the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference 4. And as such, we'll wrap up my on-site style coverage here for you. Hopefully I gave you a pretty good idea of what went down at the UFO CRC. This may be the longest I've ever talked on uh, an All of America audio episode, but, you know, that's what makes it a special. And now we're going to go beyond the on-site coverage of the UFO CRC. We're going to go behind the curtain 
and find out a little bit more about how it's all put together from the director and creator of the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference, Ryan Wood. Here now is Ryan Wood from November 30th, 2006, a scant three weeks removed from the big weekend in Vegas, talking about the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference 4. Ladies and gentlemen, we're here with the, the man behind the scenes, the guy that put it all together, Ryan Wood, and we, uh, we talked to you in May, we had you on the show, and we talked about the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference and included that portion of our interview uh, in a recent episode right before I went out to Vegas. So a lot of people here are really familiar with the UFO Conference, and they've heard by now through this episode a lot about it from uh, all the on-site interviews and my recap and stuff. So I figured once things settled down a little bit, we'd bring you on here and, and sort of do like a little look back and post look at the uh, conference because you hear a lot of hype about conferences, and then sort of you never hear anything about them afterwards. So, Ryan, you know, welcome uh, to the show here. Thanks for taking some time to talk to me. Yeah, well, thanks, Tim. I look forward to sharing with your audience uh, what I've learned from the uh, the fourth annual UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. Awesome, awesome. Well, for starters, just uh, why don't you give me, like, just your post-thoughts here on the conference. But Like I said, we're two weeks removed from it, so I'm sure uh, you've had some time for the dust to settle a little bit. Uh, just give some reflections on it. Well, I'm real happy with the way it turned out. I think it's the best conference that uh, I've put on, uh, not only from point of view of logistics and, and execution, but also from uh, speaker quality and audience uh, joy and um, getting what they want. So we we had 340 some odd people attend, uh, which was uh, up about 120 from last year. Oh, awesome. And so I was real happy with that uh, participation. We had a good hotel. Everybody liked the hotel, hotel rooms, and the environment. So I think the logistics were were good. Um, the uh, the speakers uh, enjoyed themselves. There was a couple of uh, really stunning surprises in my mind. I mean, you know, as the conference organizer, you you pick certain speakers that you've heard before, and then at the other times you take risks and uh, give people a forum to do something you think is appropriate. Um, and sometimes they uh, underwhelm you, and sometimes they blow you away. Yeah. And I was pleasantly surprised, surprised with a couple of the talks that uh, were in my sort of unknown category uh, that turned out really good. Yeah. Um, one of them was Paul Shatskin, yeah. um, who did uh, the biography of uh, T. Townsend Brown and his uh, his linkages into uh, you know espionage and and anti gravity and. Uh, and ultimately a time machine, which is, you know, highly speculative, but, you know, we've heard inklings in the Philadelphia experiment and other uh, books and documents and uh, tantalizing evidence that maybe there really is a time machine. And um, this just added to that, although that wasn't the major thrust of his uh, his talk. Uh, but that was a real uh, positive surprise in my mind. Yeah. Um, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you to kind of break the fourth wall here, uh, you sort of touched on a little bit, is how do you choose the speakers uh, when you're putting together the, co the conferences now? Uh, obviously, this is the fourth year, so you've had a lot of experience with arranging for speakers and stuff. How do you decide who to bring in and, and that kind of thing? Well, it's um – Three things I think about. Uh, one is what's the reputation of the person that may come? How big an audience draw do they have? How in, um, 
what's their their sort of fame quotient. Yeah. That's one thought. The second thought is how good a public speaker are they? I mean, how well can they deliver uh, an engaging uh, speech? And do they read their speeches or not? Um, and can they ad lib well? Can it be humorous? Can it be uh, an enjoyable experience for somebody sitting in the audience? And so that's another key factor they look at. Um, and then the last element is the content, the unusual nature of the content. Is it is it on point? Is it about a crash retrieval? Do they have something interesting, provocative, new, fresh to say and deliver to the audience? And so some people, you know, have low fame quotient and, uh, you know, good public speaking skills and interesting stuff. And so you, you end up getting a score based on those three yeah. parameters. Kind of like the UFO crash book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, and I'm not as rigorous uh, with the speakers as I am with the crash book, yeah. but uh, that's the basic idea of what I uh, target um, <clears throat> from a speaker point of view and how you how you choose them. But ultimately, I start with content, um, and I want to have, you know four, five, six specific one-hour talks about crash retrievals, and there's generally 14 speakers in a two-and-a-half-day, a two-and-a-quarter-day two weekend. Um, so it's a lot of, lot of content, a lot of, lot of depth. Um, most of the talks are 50 minutes, 55 minutes, and that's different than other conferences where people are given an hour and a half or two hours yeah. to talk about something and it gets uh, dry, long, and boring. Mm -hmm. Like I'd always heard uh, musical artists and how important it is, uh, the order of the songs on their albums, and a lot of things sort of like to build uh, sort of an order. How much, how much thought do you put into uh, when you're putting together the order of the presentations, or is it more of like uh, dictated by circumstance, like, you know, this guy has to get in at this time or something like that? Uh, generally, all the speakers are there in time, so it's not driven by speaker logistics. Um, uh, I guess what I like to have is um, somebody to get your attention uh, first thing, first time, uh, be you know festive and engaging uh, for the first couple of talks, and then uh, generally before the lunch, on each of the days, you want to make sure to have a very strong speaker so that um, the buzz at lunch is, wow, wasn't that great? Yeah. Um, and so there's some of that. And then, um, and ideally, you want to have a, a strong um, closing speech. Um, and, and not that I adhered to this policy in the last cra crash conference. Uh, perfectly, but uh, that's what I like to do, and, and I think that uh, next year I'm going to give even more attention to the order of uh, order of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a lot uh, that goes into uh, sort of trying to fight uh, the fatigue factor, too, at one of these conferences, because uh, just from the three that I've been to total, uh, that's just a, a grind of a weekend, so I'm sure uh, you sort of have to look to that, too, as a, as a barometer of how to, how to plan things out. Yeah, I mean, it's intense. I mean, you can give people longer breaks and give them less content, um, but then they feel a little more um, 
frustrated, um, or not everybody is focused and wants to hear every talk. So I figure some people will, you know, of the 14 talks, are going to say, well, I'm really excited about 10, yeah. and I'm going to, you know, sleep in or talk to my buddies or um, network mm -hmm. on a couple of other ones. Um, now, how far in advance do you plan the event? Like, uh, now you're, you're, like I said, we're two weeks out of the last one. You're already sort of like setting the groundwork here for number five? I, I am setting the groundwork. Uh, every year I've been doing it earlier and earlier, and um, just today I uh, called the uh, Tuscany Suites again and had them uh, work up a, a quote for next year. So um, uh, November 9, 10, 11 of next year is uh, when I plan to have the next one. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and now one question that I, I seem, people seem to be asking me a lot for some reason at the uh, conference was why Vegas? Uh, you're from Colorado. Uh, we kind of touched on this yesterday, but let's, uh, let's, let's dish it out here for the, for the listeners. Yeah, I mean, Vegas is a, an easy – they have good conference facilities, a lot of competition in managing that. Uh, they have easy, cheap flights from almost every major – city in the U.S. and in many cases, international cities. Um, next year, we're probably going to have a couple of talks from the U.K. Um, and, you know, there's a nonstop from London Heathrow to Las Vegas. Uh, there's a nonstop from, uh, you know, virtually every big city in the world yeah. <laughs> to Vegas. And uh, that's, that's useful for, and it's competitive rates. So, um, you can get back and forth from anywhere in, you know, a bordering state to uh, Las Vegas for under 200 bucks, and that's uh, that's nice. Yeah. And now, uh, why do you think the, the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference has been so successful? Uh, like you said, the attendance actually grew from last year. Uh, in what would I would say it would be an otherwise dreary conference market. Um, you know, we've seen some conferences start up and then peter out, and we know about the problems with New Fork, and uh, everyone's kind of hoping there'll be another X conference, but that we don't know if that's ever going to happen. You know what I mean? The, the conference market seems to be kind of hurting, but the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference is doing really well. Why do you think that is? Well, I, there's two two elements to make a great conference. One is the execution of a lot of logistics and details um, of picking a good venue um, and uh, picking good speakers, um, and then marketing it and promoting it uh, well and getting getting the word out. So th those are the things that are that are important. Um, if you make it relevant, engaging, and interesting. Uh, and the topics are fresh and new and not rehashed and regurgitated, and I've seen that all before, mm -hmm. uh, people will come. Yeah. And that's really my, my focus, and one of the reasons why I decided to do it was I was frustrated with going to other conferences and, and hearing about stuff that I thought shouldn't be on the podium. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you think like a lot has to do with like the location too? Uh, some places they they sort of are off, kind of off off the beaten path locations, and also uh, maybe they over overshoot their load uh, by bringing in too many stars, if you will, uh, who are you know well known draws. But if you bring in like five or six of these well known draws, when one would suffice, next thing you know, you know they've overblown their budget. Well, there's always those uh, challenges. I mean, 
you have to have a good sense of, of business management to to run a conference. You know, I I lost money on the first uh, couple of conferences and. and I'm making back my money, and my wife is finally, okay, Ryan, you can do the fifth one. <laughs> so um, it's uh, you learn every time yeah. how to be more effective at this, and uh, the the broad brush organization of picking speakers and, and pulling it together is um, some of the most glamorous and easiest work. The hardest work is keeping the emails up, um, making, calling people. I mean, yeah. literally, I, I talked to every single person that came to the conference on the phone at least once. Wow. And that's the sort of dedication that it takes to pull it off and have people be happy. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems like the uh, the UFO Crash Trailer Conference definitely has strong word of mouth too, which uh, yeah. which has got to help. It's got a great reputation uh, as far as conferences go. Not only were you running the whole conference, but also you had a presentation. Uh, can you just give a little thumbnail sketch for the people who missed the conference on what you were talking about? Uh, it was sort of a half and half Devil's Hole UFO Crash Case, and also this exciting new project, the UFO Dex. Yeah, um, well, since I'm the organizer of the Crash Retrieval Conference, I feel uh, in you know, compelled to get a good, fresh crash retrieval with uh, hopefully hardware out of the ground. And I, I worked on this one in uh, August of 1949 out in uh, Devil's Hole, Nevada. And, you know, I've got some newspaper articles that are suggestive. I've been to the site, got some intuitives involved, pretty confident that I've got the, uh, the right site. There's some physical damage there. Um, and hopefully there's uh, there's evidence of, of parts that can be recovered out of the ground. Um, so that, that's there's some low-level witnesses also suggestive of something unusual happening in that area, but not specifically in that site uh, yet. So th that's really the the Devil's Hole crash in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's a good good story. Minor prospecting, oh, disc whizzes overhead, crashes in front of him. Two little ETs pop out, run around. He chases them a little bit through the desert, uh, grabs a piece of wreckage, goes to the newspaper. Um, they write a story about it, and um, then the disinformation and cover-up begins, and the stories are changed, and uh, the people's names and the miners are changed, and the Air Force makes statements, and so it sort of gets buried and manipulated. Yeah. Um, and so that's a, actually a, that was a fun, fun one. And there's still more work to be done mm -hmm. on that one. The other part of my uh, talk was what I think a really strategic and important aspect for the field, and, and that is the the integration into a single uh, intelligence portal of all the knowledge about UFOs. And when I say all the knowledge, I literally mean all the knowledge. So I've I've scanned and just for a pilot program, I've scanned and OCR'd optical character recognized 150 different books in the UFO field. There's only about 4,000 total. Um, and journals and periodicals and uh, Videotapes have been transcribed and uh, sliced up into two-minute segments that will be served up, uh, images. 
um, and the web can be uh, scoured and and mined for uh, relevant information about particular topics in the UFO field. And once you get this silo of knowledge together in a web portal mm -hmm. um, that's very strong and rich and deep, uh, you can begin to do fun things quickly. Yeah. Like, you know, give me all the cases where there are motherships, and all of a sudden somebody with a little bit of research and motivation can publish a book about motherships. Mm -hmm. uh, or give me all the incidents in Wyoming yeah. or uh, New Mexico and or all the the crossover between the RAND Corporation and the UFOs. So you can begin to really mine and explore the true nature of the phenomenon and our cover-up, because there's two two problems here. There's really the phenomenon: do we understand it? What is it? How does it work? Et cetera, et cetera. And then why is it here? And then the cover-up: yeah. uh, who specifically is uh, involved? What are they trying to do? Et cetera. Who's who knows the truth, and um, why are they being so stupid? So. Both those things can be accomplished with UFODEX, and uh, UFODEX.net is the uh, URL. It's not up yet, but um, it will be uh, available sometime in January for beta testing and, and sort of pilot surfing. Nice, nice. So UFODEX.net is the URL, and people can check it out sometime uh, at the beginning of 07 or so? Yeah, beginning of 07. Awesome, awesome. This sounds really exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to checking this out when it gets up and running and uh I think it's going to be just a boon for, for a lot of people. Right. Um, and now just to sort of wrap it up here, we, I saw a lot of people doing filming there. Uh, are there going to be DVDs available of the presentations? And if so, where can people get those DVDs? Oh, yeah, yeah. The uh, DVDs are available on my website, ufoconference.com, and you can click on the products button and order the DVD conference set as well as individual DVDs. Um, so, and the conference proceedings, which is a wonderful... Oh, that was awesome. I love it. Yeah, that. I mean, uh, you know, there's no other conference in UFOs that I'm aware of that publishes a conference proceedings except for the Mutual UFO Network. Yeah, yeah. And so that's uh, um, new and different, and um, and I want to keep that going. Yeah, that was, uh, that was one of the coolest aspects of it when I checked in. I just got this fat book, too, and I was like, what is this? This is awesome. All right, so you can grab the DVDs and the conference proceedings at uh, the URL again for that? Uh, UFOconference.com. Awesome, awesome. And next year's conference is the 9th, 10th, and 11th in Las Vegas, Nevada at the Tuscany Resorts and Casino, right? That's right. Awesome, is. awesome. Well, thank you very much. I had a great time out there in Vegas. Hopefully I'll see you there next year as well, and uh, good luck with edition number five of the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. All right. Well, thanks, Tim. Uh, great to be on your program. There you go, folks. That was Ryan Wood. Big, big thanks to Ryan Wood for taking some time and giving us a look behind the scenes of the UFO CRC. As Ryan said, you can pick up DVDs of the various presentations from the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference at www.ufoconference.com. Also, next year's UFO Crash Retrieval Conference, the 5th edition, will be held November 9th, 10th, and 11th at the Tuscany Hotel and Casino. If you've never been to a UFO conference, this is definitely one of them to check out. 
And with that, we pretty much wrap up the Bin All of America Audio UFO Crash Retrieval Conference special. Thanks to Richard Dolan, Nick Redfern, Michael Sala, Paul Shatskin, and Matthew Tooney for taking some time out of the busy weekend to be a part of this special episode. And of course, as I said, big thanks to Ryan Wood for the post-conference thoughts. If you want to hear more from Richard Dolan, Nick Redfern, Ryan Wood, or Dr. Michael Sala, definitely check out the Bin All of America Audio Archives. Each of those four folks have been guests on the show previously for some lengthy interviews. So if you want to hear more from them, definitely check out our archives. Moving right along, normally we would be doing the Even All of America Audio Listener Feedback segment here. But in light of all the talking I've done this week and some technical difficulties we've had at BenAllOfAmerica.com over the weekend that have delayed the arrival of this week's episode, we're going to skip over this and resume Ben All of America audio listener feedback next week with perhaps one of the most hilarious letters I've ever received. It is my very first hate mail, and trust me, it has to be heard to be believed, but it is a wild one, and I'll be reading that hate mail next week in the Ben All of America audio listener feedback segment of the show and responding to it, of course. Wrapping up this week's show now, I want to thank Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Ralph Molesworth of BenAllOfAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series and the website. I would not be able to do what I do without their help and support, so hats off to the gang and staff at BOA. BenAllOfAmerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're a long-time Ben All of America audio listener or an appreciative newcomer, or you just want to share in the holiday spirit, and you want to help support the audio series and the website, click the PayPal button at BenAllOfAmerica.com, make a donation, every little bit helps, and would be immensely appreciated. Next week on Ben All of America Audio, it is the first half of a marathon conversation with Bill Ryan of Project Serpo fame. Bill Ryan burst on the scene as the webmaster for Serpo.org, he was on the front lines of the Serpo story that exploded over the course of 2006. For a long time, I sort of poo-pooed the Serpo story. My textbook response was, give it a year, and then we'll take a look at it. So, it's been a year, and now it's time to take a look at the Serpo story. But unlike some of the other interviews you've heard and coverage of the Serpo story, we're not going to waste your time talking about the Ebens and what kind of games they played on Serpo. We're going to look at the story behind the Serpo story. How did it start? What was its evolution like? Why is it seemingly fizzled out now? And what can we learn about the Serpo story with regards to how major UFO stories break in the field of ufology? It's Bill Ryan talking about the Serpo story. Next week, December 9th, 2006, on Been All of America Audio. On that note, I bid you farewell for another week, my friends. You'll be hearing from me next week with more Been All of America Audio. Until then, this is Tim Benall, signing off.